Welcome to the Rise Network podcast show, a podcast dedicated to help you reach your dream lifestyle through investing in real estate. We're going to be sitting down with new, intermediate, and experienced investors to talk all about real estate and how it has changed their lives. If you're looking to scale your portfolio or even just get into real estate investing, you're in the right place. Make sure to tune in. Hello, everyone. You are listening to the Rise Real Estate Investing Podcast with your host, Austin Ye and... And Mayu, what's going on, everybody? Austin, I've been seeing you a lot. I guess it was only one time this weekend, but... That's <laughs> so a, a lot. That's a lot. long as drive. It was long as drive together. <laughs> yeah, it's enough. Now we don't have to link up for like a year or so. It was like yeah, yeah. Until, until May 17th, which is when we're going to have the next Rise Real Estate Investing Networking event. So ah, that was like, That was that nice. Was Why plug. don't you talk a bit about it? Talk your shit <laughs> and I can talk about it. Yeah, I think uh, overall, guys, like the, the real estate community, I don't know... Everyone's obviously at various levels. Like you might be like newer investors that just aren't as plugged in, but there's a lot of different kind of real estate community related groups and networks and stuff like that. Right. So a lot of people are starting to have uh, in-person networking events again together. There's not, oddly enough, there's not too many that happen in downtown Toronto. So rise is one of the ones that we try to keep in downtown Toronto. So if you guys are new experienced beginners, intermediates, um, it's open to everyone. Uh, there'll probably be a small charge. We're thinking about charging like five bucks or so just to make sure that everyone that actually buys a ticket actually attends. Um, but it will be at a downtown bar. So keep make sure you guys are part of the Rise Facebook group and uh, the link will be posted in there on Thursday, which I guess is today. <laughs> yeah. And, and uh, just want to let you guys know, like tickets do sell out pretty quickly. I think the last time we did something like this with the far more expensive ticket price, um, yeah. we still sold out in what, like, once within 24 hours, release more than another 24 hours, release more than 24. Like it just kept on selling like every, every time we threw it out there. Yeah. Um, given that this one's super cheap, I would recommend that you guys get your, your tickets as soon as possible. Um, it'd be amazing to connect with uh, the audience out there in the Rise community. Um, anyways, Mayu, what have we been up to? Because we, we alluded to uh, us spending a lot of time together. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we went out to, so this weekend went straight to like real estate events, right? Like I had, um, I had, a, another event on Friday and Saturday, but Sunday we were together. We went to, uh, Mike Van Hoot, uh, his event out in London, Ontario. So for anyone that doesn't know Mike, super cool guy, super chill. Someone I met, um, I think back in like 2019, very early on in my real estate journey, he was such a humble, like just a character, like someone you really enjoy kind of spending time around. Um, so for me, I was just, uh, it was a good opportunity to be able to go back, connect with him after like COVID and everything's changed. And he's sold off a good chunk of his portfolio as well. He's doing all these different things, investing in Southern America. Um, but it was also like, it was a really cool event because you just had a bunch of real estate investors in a room together talk, like kind of like masterminding, talking about where we see the market going, um, risks, what everyone's doing, new business ideas. And, um, I mean, awesome. Why don't you tell everyone why, why you were going? Yeah, I went to uh, find different sort of income streams. Like our income has diversified within real estate, but not really outside of that. So when we see things tightened up, that's going to impact our bottom line as well. Um, you and I are just like pretty conservative people. We don't like to see our income dry up. And so we're, we're looking for other business ventures. We're thinking if there's anything else we can do to make more money so that if let's say real estate is something that we can't do uh, a few years down the line, like we still need to be able to put food on our plate. You know? <laughs> Not saying that we're broke or anything, but, but definitely like being on the more conservative side and expanding our mind a bit more. And Mike's a cool dude. Like he has, he has like so many different income streams, YouTube. Um, he has a restaurant, his rental properties, private lending. Uh, he has flipping. 
He has um, something to do with the car business. It's slipping my mind right now. But like so many different diverse sources of income stream. And like one cool thing that I got away from that event is, is that like, although the Canadian real estate market is, is slowing down a bit, um, and obviously a lot of people think that it's overvalued, I'm within that same sort of camp. Um, you can look on an international scale, like even just outside of the States as well. But look at like international real estate because you don't want you want to it's okay to diversify within the same industry as long as it's across different sort of um, countries as well because you're not tied into the political dynamic of what's going on in Canada. So the one thing I'll, I'll add on to that is um, a lot of people think about geographic diversification as just going over to the U.S. Right, and the reality is the U.S. and Canada are kind of tied at the hips. It's not too likely that. If one is tanking, the other won't, right? Or it's not, it's not like if the US tanks, Canada. It's not won't. unreasonable to think that's going to be the case, yeah. right? Like, yeah. Be, yeah. So, I mean, we're not going to talk about everything that Mike talked about at, at his event because that just wouldn't be fair to everyone that kind of paid to attend that. So, uh, but I do think, you know, there's, there's a lot that we took out of that event. And similarly, like anytime we go to a networking event, it's always hard to get your foot in the door. And then once you're in there, once you talk to one person, it's just like now you just let loose and you talk to everyone, right? And I think that's for most people. So uh, for anyone that's out there debating what to do with their time, make sure you guys go out and start networking. That was, that was one, one more time. quick update on my end uh, with my Airbnb that we launched. Um, so we had our guest stay in there for a week and already, already some issues on that side of things. Um, I think he's just trying to get a free stay. <laughs> oh yeah. Yeah. Like he's, he's saying like there's bad bugs. He's like, buddy, can't be bad bugs. Can't be like this is a brand new place. <laughs> we gutted it and we did it. And like, you're the first guest and this is not you stop. Like we bought this from, um, from Amazon. And, and not only that, like the previous tenant who was there like six months before we renovated this, like never had bad bugs then. So at what point did bad bugs come in? Right. And then he's just like, Oh, like I want to refund this, that, and a third. Then he's like, the garbage can is too small. I don't know why that matters. <laughs> you're stating yeah. garbage can being too small. He's like, there was a newspaper in the oven. And when I turned it on, it went on fire. Um, but that's, so that's what's in the garbage. I was like, okay, like first and foremost, why is there a newspaper in the oven? That doesn't make sense, right? Second of all, why would you just turn an oven on? Like you would obviously be putting food or something on it. You would see it there, right? Um, so like just things that are not really making too much sense right now. Uh, reach out to Airbnb support team. So trying to figure out what the next steps are. But um, so far, not off to a great start. And so far feeling that long-term rentals are kind of my preference, but <laughs> one bad experience. So we'll see yeah. what happens. I'm going to, I'm going to keep it up right and, and see where things go, but that's everything on the Airbnb side of uh, things, but maybe we should go over reviews, right? Like just like one review because we haven't done that in a while. I'm on Apple podcast right now, five-star review as it should be uh, <laughs> so much value quality podcast that provides a lot of value to those who love to learn about real estate investing. Great guests, excellent questions asked. Hosts are super entertaining, so it's nice to have a laugh while learning. Definitely a must if you're a new or experienced investor. Really appreciate that. P. Mary Kingston. Um, if you guys haven't already reviewed us, make sure to do so on Spotify. Give us a five-star. Five-star is great. Four-star shit. So like, if you don't like <laughs> us, give us a four-star. It's, it's true. Like, it's like Airbnb, right? Like, If you don't like us and you don't like the podcast, give us a four-star. If you like are, if we're above average, it's, it's a five, right? So give us a five there. Um, also review us on Apple podcast. And we're going to jump into today's podcast episode. Today, we have a very special guest. We have Matthew Frederick. You probably know him in the real estate community. He's been on a couple of podcasts already. 
but he's an ultra experienced investor. I'm talking about over 30 years or just around 30 years of real estate experience doing everything, starting off from like conversions, um, single family homes, buying up to apartments, commercial properties, fix and flip, lease options, um, mixed use buildings, development, uh, storage units. He does it all. Like there, there's so much value to be gained from this podcast. Um, to be frank, we, we covered quite a bit of different topics, but even that we just go over Matthew's journey of like how it is to start from, from really like a new investor and, and growing into his scale of what he's accomplished over the past 30 years. Again, real estate's a marathon. It's not a race. And it's crazy to see the things you can accomplish in 30 years. So make sure to tune into this episode, five-star review, and we're going to get into it right now. We are joined with our very special guest, Matthew Frederick. Matthew, how's everything going, man? It's fantastic. Glad to be here with you guys. Looks like we're stuck with Austin's uh, poor mic connection today. <laughs> um, but Matthew, so for any of our guests that don't know you, why don't you give everyone kind of a quick background on how you got started in real estate um, and what you're up to today? Well, I got started, uh, I would say about 37 years ago. I was 19 years old when I bought my first house. It was a house we shared with a tenant, which means we had a common kitchen. They had a basement apartment. I had the main floor and upstairs. And uh, I bought it not as an investor. I bought it because I'm an immigrant. I came to Canada in 1972, like seven years old. So the time I was 19 years old, I thought, you know what? I'd like to own something. Because my parents always told me, you know, you have to work twice as hard to get as far. And I did. I went to own something. About four and a half years later, my brother, who was a police officer, he sort of pulled me into an investing because he was driving around seeing, you know, properties all the time. Because my background was computer systems. By that time I was teaching, he said, I want you to come on in. I'm like, I'm not coming in. I'm not an investor. I'm a teacher. And he's like, I'm your older brother. I have a gun. You're going to come in. <laughs> and uh, from my heritage back in the day, you listen to your older brother. So that's how I got into it. Uh, my first house, again, I was just living there renting. It was kind of helping me with my rent. My first investment property was in Hamilton, Ontario. It was a triplex and uh, it was an old Victorian style home. It was nice. I had uh, two bedrooms on the main floor, three on the second, bachelor on the third. And I really cut my, uh, my, my teeth learning how to invest with multiple tenants. See, I always thought people grew up the way I did, where you took care of your property. You know, in my neighborhood, we competed in cutting our grass. I learned that's not how it is. And people are only as good as their self-respect when it comes to taking care of property. So that's how I started. <laughs> that's pretty great. So, so you started off in the Hamilton market. And when was your first investment property? That was, uh, it sounds like the 90s, maybe? Yeah, yeah. So, so pretty much it was in the 90s. How did you scale from there? And, and what was that kind of like, you know, I, I know you've had quite the journey, so compressing that a little bit, but... Um, how long did you keep stay in Hamilton? Um, and how did your investment journey kind of progress? Because I bought my first house at 19, four years later, the property had gone up in value. I was able to bore against it. I bought my first triplex. Then I bought two more using, I guess today it's called Burr. Mm. And uh, by the time I had my third property, I hit the wall. I couldn't afford to qualify for anything else. Back in my day, interest rates were 6%. Properties appreciated 5% a year normally. So not 2%, uh, you know, uh, interest rates and not like 15% appreciation. So 
hitting the wall, I had to go and find somebody who had a portfolio who was pretty much tired of it. And I convinced them to sell me their portfolio and hold a 95% mortgage on all those properties for about seven years. So that's how I breached the gap from, yes, I had property, but on paper, I didn't look good anymore. And uh, I found a person with a portfolio. And I convinced them to let me take over your portfolio. You're getting older. Hold a mortgage, a massive one. Five years from now, you're retired. You're in a lower tax bracket. You'll get the bulk of your money in a lower tax bracket against your capital gains. So that's pretty much how I went from, let's say, one to three to the portfolio was 10 properties. So I had about 13, 14 properties. One thing I will say, with all these properties, I wasn't rich. I was tired having properties all over the place. I found that uh, I work a hard week. I come home and uh, just before I have my dinner, I get a phone call. And back in the day, it was the flip phones. I get a phone call and I'm like, what the hell is this? A tree fell on a fence or some situation with a boiler or some furnace situation. And I'm like, on paper, I'm looking pretty good. But all my paycheck is being, all my cash flow is gone by the end of the month. And then my paycheck is all, all zero. The extra income is gone. And I thought, wow, this is not what it looked like on television. After a while, I, I switched to multifamily, like 12 unit buildings, because at least I can have a superintendent. Mm-hmm. And those properties were built like Jeeps, not like Honda Civics. See, houses are Honda Civics. They're a great car, but not really designed to take the beating that a tenant would, would put it through. The building, stronger, harder, everything was designed for noise control. And I had somebody there working for me and the cash flow would pay for that. And I found that was my resurrection in a sense. That's interesting. That's something that I think even experienced investors in today's market, like me and Austin have talked about it multiple times with other guests as well. Cash flow comes in, it's great in theory. On paper, it should be there and our bank accounts should be growing every month. But somehow the cash flow gets eroded into multiple different kind of there's always some sort of cash call every month, right? Whether, yeah. like you said, like I've got a roof that fell in. We have like furnaces that go out and they're older properties. So they always end up way more expensive than it should, right? Um, so your solution was jumping into larger multifamily. Um, how did the multifamily space work for you with like the numbers still good there? Is that kind of where you started to see a transition in your portfolio and your approach or? Yeah, I've always discovered in, in my business uh, as a teacher, plus I've had restaurants, I've had wellness clinics. I've had industrial companies that I've been associated with. I've always found that every level you go up, you have to reduce your effort, your day-to-day operations in order to get to that level, which means you have to put a system in place. So I'm not saying work gets easier. I'm saying you have to develop a system so that you're not spending all your time physically working. And I found that when I went to a 12 unit, because I had a system in place, meaning a team of people to fix things, plus I had a superintendent on site, I'm able to pass off most of the day-to-day work that did not require my genius in order to be able to get to the next level. So really it's about conservation of energy using a better system. And when I had like 13, 14 houses, I wasn't conserving my energy. I was just going crazy. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. So. Uh, in terms of systems with the apartments, are you hiring a property manager or did you have like a superintendent in there managing everything for you? And how were you able to scale from there? Because I know that you still had a full-time job. That already sounds like a ton of work, having like 10 plus properties in an apartment and still working full-time. 
Yes. So my first building, I had a superintendent who was there on site. Then my second, third, and fourth, we hired a property manager. But in order to get to your second, you have to do your first correct. A lot of people feel as though, hey, you know what? Multifamily is just a big house. And they feel I have about three or four or five houses. I should be able to jump over to my next building pretty easily. But what they don't realize is you might get your first building based on your equity from your houses. But your second, third, and fourth building come from how great your first building was, which means it's your prototype in order to talk to other partners. The only way for me to get my second, third, fourth, and fifth building all the way up to 27 is a joint venture with people who had the money, who had the credit, and I brought to the table the expertise. And in my first JV, it was I brought half the cash, half the mortgage. They brought half the cash, half the mortgage. And we did work together. But from that point forward, they brought all the cash. I brought all the effort. People say to me, why would somebody put all the money down and the actual uh, mortgage and give you 50% of everything? Well, I always tell people it's been done for 10,000 years. Man, three minutes. Woman, nine months. As far as I'm concerned, when it comes to pregnancy, the three minutes is a down payment and the mortgage. And carrying the baby is what I do for five years. And after seven months, there's no way in hell I feel as though I am you know, doing the easy part here. Because I'm the one carrying the baby, my body is stretching, I'm going through all the night sweats, I'm dealing with everything else for the next five years. And when you lay it out that way, and you understand that, that's why I was able to get people who have the money but don't want to carry the baby to literally bring the money to the table, and then we create our arrangements where we're 50-50. That's how I got my next few. But what I was saying just quickly is the first one has to be done right. So you may have to hire a mentor to walk you through the process so that it's a prototype to get your second and then your third and your fourth. That's how you scale from successful experiences, not just trial and error. Yeah, we talk about that all of the time. Um, When people get into their first JV, they feel like they need 50-50 right away. But at some point, you need to prove yourself. You might need to make a couple of concessions for the first one or two. And then once you have that proof of concept and you can actually show investors all the hard work you put in, all of the returns, then you can start requesting for more. So really glad to hear that you kind of went down that same path as well. Now, I know that um, you're a jack of all trades and master of all as well. Not only are apartments what you do, but since then, since your 30 year plus experience in real estate, you've done storage units, you've done developments, you've done pretty much everything there is. at what point did you start switching off from apartment buildings or like residential real estate? And what was the logic in that? Well, some people just know one strategy and it's okay to just know one strategy and use that forever. I don't, I don't knock that. But when you're around for 30 something years, you realize there's a season for certain strategies. For instance, so Burr, buy, renovate, refi- you know, rent, refinance and repeat. That works great now last 10 years because properties are going up 15% anyway, plus your improvement, plus interest rates are so low, you can refinance. But remember, for me, most of my time, properties are going up 5% a year, interest rates were 6%. So if that ever happens again, then Burmasters will find themselves thinking, I got to do something else. So because I've been around for a long time, certain things work. Something as simple as rent to owns or lease options. A lease option or rent to own works great when the market is still going up. So you're at the lower end of the curve 
and you can promise somebody in three years, the property will be worth more. That's why you're agreeing to a higher price in the future because it will be worth more. But if you're at the top of the market, if you're about to fall, how do you promise someone to buy a property at a higher price in the future? So what I'm trying to say is, for me, depended on the situation that was going on in the province and, and what province I was in. But I found that when I was doing my residential, I was still learning my commercial. I was still learning multifamily. I was doing 80% residential, 20% multifamily, because I found that the multifamily helped me to do my residential better, which means I had to be smarter. It's like being in grade 10, playing basketball, and then going to the NBA for two weeks. You actually become better because you have to push yourself harder. So then when I was in multifamily, I wanted to push myself harder to be better at multifamily. So I started looking into development, into building. Because if you can build a building, you'd be better at your multifamily today. And because I was spending 20% of my time in the construction world, learning how to do it, I found that I was better at multifamily. It pushed me into the commercial construction world anyway. And I happened just to continue to go into that world because I was there looking into it. And then self-storage, what do I like that? No fridge, no stove, no kids, no pets, no washer, no dryer. You know what? One employee, very, very easy to manage and handle. Dumb things happen. Like people try to break into certain units to steal Harley Davidson's or Honda Civic parts, or somebody might drive into the garage door. Things like that happen. But other than that, I found that that was a much easier way to do things because after having so many tenants that I've had, and I have property managers, but I still have to deal with them, the tenants anyway. I got to a point where whenever I see a tenant, I'm talking to them. I want to karate chop them to the neck, which means I don't want any tenants anymore. So then I, I naturally went towards self-storage, even though I had tenants. So sometimes the situation you're in drives you to the next area. And I was driven over time. I was driven over, didn't want to deal with certain people and certain things. And I was driven because I was always trying to do something better to make me better at my current position today. I, I just want to ask you a, a couple, a couple of questions, I guess, on that. Um, the first is you mentioned that, you know, through various life cycles, you've kind of rotated your investment strategy, right? Um, so we covered the bird that it works best in an upward market cycle. Um, talking about some of the other class, asset classes that you've invested in, um, at what point in the market cycle do you feel like those are usually the best investment classes. And I say this because I was talking to one other, another real estate investor like a week ago who was talking to me about industrial real estate and how the cap rates there are just like amazing. I was like, well, it seems a little bit above kind of what I do, but I'm just kind of curious how you predict and how you see these trends in the different asset classes. Well, I find that the mixed use with, uh, let's say four or five retail spots, Strip Plaza, I found those to be second to self-storage as most profitable but you have to have the right kind of rent. It has to be something called net net, not a gross rent. Gross meaning they pay one price like a buffet and you fix everything. Net net means they pay per square footage for rent and then they pay for the taxes, the maintenance, the insurance. I like the fact that whenever anything went wrong, I pass it on to my tenant. And that was really important for me because after having multifamily buildings, having to fix things, my brain needed to shrink a bit. So therefore, I shrink from the strain of it. So therefore, the retail strip plaza went really well for me. But then you have to do that right as well, which means I had to implement a RI system. I had made sure there were businesses renting from me that were recession-proof. 
like a pizza shop. People will buy pizza in good or bad times, or even a haircutting place. This is more internet. A hair salon or a females only gym is more internet proof because you can't send your muscles to China or India and then bring them back to you. You got to work on them right there. Now, the pandemic did affect those businesses. So now I'm actually looking at an RIP system, a recession-proof, internet-proof, pandemic-proof stores in any retail plaza that I have. And I'm giving it to about six units. And if I can do a mixed use where I can have some apartments above, then I'm doing best of both worlds. So I like that scenario. It works really well with me. Today, because property prices, let's say in Hamilton, you buy a house for about $780,000, I'm now beginning to look at the U.S. again. So I bought stuff in the U.S. back in 2000, 2008. So Florida in 2000, Arizona 2008. That's all great stuff. But now I'm thinking, even though the U.S. dollar is 27 cents more, and you may have to withhold between 15 and 30% of your revenue, depending on what system you use, whether you're filing a tax return or not in the U.S., a property in Buffalo, New York, in a good area, let's say Elmwood, Allentown, you know, some of those areas can go for about $190,000 US. You can literally buy three properties for a million dollars and make incredible cash flow today, just buying about an hour and a half drive from Toronto. So I'm only looking there again because the prices are kind of crazy now. And therefore that drives me. Remember something, We are investors, but we are wolves. We are hunters. We are lions. Sometimes we have to follow the prey. I don't see houses as prey, but the fact is we aren't farmers. We're not planting. We literally have to follow the caribou. And that's why in time I may change my strategy depending on where the situation is. At least true hunters do. Mm-hmm. Wow. <laughs> no, I think that's really good advice. Um, any reason why you're looking in the States as opposed to some of the smaller markets? In Ontario, like Thunder Bay, for example, I've been looking at Thunder Bay because the prices there are fairly cheap. I'm running across single family homes for, I don't know, 150, 160,000 Canadian, 170,000. And it's still a big population size, like 100,000 plus people. And I know Buffalo's fundamentals, probably not the absolute best. Similar Thunder Bay, I don't think their fundamentals are probably the absolute best, but the values there, there's upside potential. There's limited downside potential because you're not going to be buying a house for like, or 15 grand, right? So your downside's capped as well. Is there any reason why you're moving for, uh, towards the States as opposed to some other further Northern cities in Ontario? So you're right. If you do buy in the States, even in Buffalo, you have to know what area you're buying in. The area is critical, but I'm actually looking in Ontario as well. So I do look at Pembroke. I look at Belleville. I'm based out of Toronto. So for me, Belleville is about a two hour drive. Pembroke is a four and a half hour drive. I am looking at uh, North of Aurelia. So I'm doing some of the same things that you're doing. I'm not just focusing on the U.S., but all of a sudden, though, the U.S. just became more attractive only because if I'm driving two hours to Kingston, I'm driving an hour and 15 minutes to Belleville. I can just as well drive an hour and 15 minutes to Buffalo as well, as opposed to driving all the way to Windsor, right? So I do look at the smaller towns like Paris or some of the towns that are not on the radar. And that's, that's something that someone should do as well. But because I've bought in the U.S. before, I'm comfortable with buying at a distance and I build in Belize. So therefore, I'm comfortable with that. And I do have stuff in B.C., Alberta, Saskatchewan. So that's OK with me. But not everybody's comfortable with leaving the country. 
Mm. Yeah, no, I totally get it. Um, so one question I have that really impresses me with investors of your caliber, being able to switch strategies, go to different markets, do commercial, residential development is, is that for someone like me who gets caught in analysis paralysis, um, and when I switch from multifamily to commercial or even mixed use, I'm just like, where do I even start, right? I start to question myself. I start to ask myself a thousand questions. Since you've done multiple strategies uh, throughout your investment journey, what is kind of that due diligence process or I guess mental process like for you to say, okay, like I want to invest in development. Now I'm going to do so within the next six months. Like walk me through kind of your mindset and what type of due diligence you do to make sure that you can go in that strategy successfully. Cause you don't want it to be catastrophic as well, a catastrophic as well. Cause it's a totally different uh, strategy that you're, you're kind of uh, venturing into. You see, that's a really great question, but I don't actually think of what strategy I'm going to apply. And then I learn the strategy. I don't do that. I read the ground because I was in the military as well. I used to be a soldier. So I look at the area. I look at the, the situation. So what does the government want to happen in this area from the city point of view, from the region point of view, if it's the U.S. as the county, what are they surging money towards? What are they more favorable about? What is the need of that town or that city? And if they need more basement apartments or if they need more affordable housing or buildings, then I'm drawn to that. I take a look and see what's happening with their growth. Are students going there and staying there? Or are they going to go there? Like if you go to Kitchener, you go to school in Kitchener and get a job in Kitchener. If you go to St. Catharines, who knows? Maybe you'll stay there or maybe you'll leave there. If you go to Hamilton for school, if you're in the... In the medical retail industry, you'll get a job there. So it's important to know where jobs are being created and then what type of need there is. So I generally study the area. What's the GDP? What's the transportation? All those little factors that everybody else uses. And I try to figure out what's required. And then I say, what strategy works best there? In some areas, I just secure the right to buy a property under contract and I might wholesale it because maybe some people are having a hard time getting deals off market and I'm really good at getting deals off market. Or if they need a third suite in the backyard, then if that's what the city is now approving, then I'm going to do it. So to answer your question, I don't tell a city what it needs. I don't say to myself, I want to get into self-storage. I look at the situation. I determine what is the problem. And if there's a shortage or a problem, I only learn the strategy towards that. Now, what I tend to do is find somebody who's doing it very well, try to hang out with them. Let's give an example. I won't, won't keep the answer too long, but I wanted to learn how to build. And I was having a hard time finding people who were helping me to do larger builds in Ontario. They were kind of stingy. I found a company in Alberta and they pretty much, I pulled title on all their projects and they were going to the same six doctors to fund all their deals, but one deal at a time. And I said, I have to come out there and show you guys how to raise money. And they said, don't come out. So I jumped on a WestJet flight out of Hamilton Airport. I flew out there by the next Tuesday. And I said, I just flew 3,500 kilometers over three hours on a plane to see you. I want one hour of your time. And they're like, we told you don't come out here. I go, but who else right now just 3,000 kilometers to see you? Who in the city just did that? This is nobody. I go, I will have my meeting. And you know what? Three hours later, we got involved and I agreed that if I can shadow them to understand their culture and who they are as a company, I can help them bring money to the table through education training that will bring in investors 
And today I'm 25% of that company. And I've built over 280 houses. I've also done a few three and four story condo buildings with them. Okay, so it's important to understand that they had a need. I went out there and solved their need based on my need to find someone to teach me how to build. I don't give you these big long answers, but hopefully you sort of understand that I had to be bold because fortune favored the bold. And I had to go out there and try to solve problems for people and match it to my problems. It's really communication. So I, I guess tagging on to Austin's question there, as you're entering into all these different kind of, they're not independent businesses, but they're all, they're all within real estate, but they all you know, definitely require different skill and knowledge, right? It doesn't sound like you're growing this out yourself. Did you bring in in-house like employees or was it more so strategic partnership with different companies that would help facilitate your growth and you're keeping your team pretty lean? Like how did, how did you structure that growth? Yeah. So for development, I partnered with a company who's been around for 15 years. And some of those builders have 15 or 30 years experience because I knew I couldn't do that on my own. When it comes to the buy, fix, sell, I pretty much had a mentor help me through my first two or three. And I have a company that does buy, fix, sell my own company. When it comes to buy and hold, I don't tend to manage my properties anymore, but I did manage my first properties. So I understand what it takes and how long it'll take to fix a thing what it costs for something. So if a property management company tries to pad the invoice, I know. So therefore, what I do I, I, in the beginning, I'll put a lot of my effort in and my time into something, and then I'll slowly try to identify which systems can I pass on to other people who specialize in those systems. Remember, a car is a car, has a steering system, has a braking system, a fuel system, and I have to understand how those systems work and who am I going to pass those systems over to? So I start off by doing things myself. In most cases, if I have a mentor, that's great. But then I identify each system and I pass them on to somebody else. So I'm not really doing the system, mm -hmm. but I do asset manage everybody so that they know that I expect perfection and or expect them to give me 100%. Got it. So did you have to grow your business? And then I guess in between like, I guess you've got a couple of different companies and then you've got a couple of different strategic partnerships. And I'm, I'm also guessing it's also kind of geographically based as well, like especially as you yes. went to US and, and so on. So this actually takes me back to a question that I had earlier on, which I really wanted to ask, but I couldn't. Um, so you went into the US and then back to Canada, right? So I'm wondering what caused you to come back to Canada from an investing perspective. Um, and then when you were going to the US at that time, you pinpointed Florida in 2000 and Arizona in 2008. Uh, what do you look for in these markets when you're deciding, uh, is this a good market to get into? Well, in my case, I was speaking in the U.S. and I was speaking out of Florida, I was speaking in Arizona, and I was speaking in B.C., Alberta, Saskatchewan, Man Manitoba, and Ontario. So because I was there speaking for Friday, Saturday, Sundays, I would stick around Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, and I would find things, I would look for stuff, right? But I liked uh, Florida Cape Coral because it had, um, to me, it looked like Venice, Italy, and it had a draw to it that you can have canals and a recreation concept to it, um, which you couldn't get anywhere else. You can have canals behind your house. And because I like that concept, I could market that concept. I always have to find something that I can market. In Arizona, I got executive houses. I mean, they were like one third the price because the market has fallen. And I created systems where a corporation would rent the house. Now we provide the chef, 
the fitness instructor, the lawn care, the driver, the masseuse, like a legitimate masseuse. I would provide all these people who are local people and package it and sell that concept. I get a massive monthly rental income from a corporation who, instead of putting somebody into a hotel, would put somebody there. We just flew in from Germany, like a scientist, and two or three of them in the same house, because that creates a dynamic of genius together that they don't get in a hotel. So you see how I look at something, what can I do with it? And how can I package and market it? Even with my cottages in Halliburton area. I had a company called cottagescape.com a long time ago. I packaged them all together. They were all on, on a lake. And the concept was boating and recreation tied all in one. And I was able to package that. And years later, I actually sold the package. So even whatever I have in Florida, I can sell it as a package. Whatever I have in Arizona, I can sell it as a package. So I tend to look at something and say, how can I market that? How can I make something out of it that's unique and interesting? And that's why I, I do things. If I buy it in an area, it's the exact same thing. You know, I package things. So, so I don't put my houses in the same company as my buildings. And I don't put my strip plazas in the same company as my multifamilies. So I may have like eight or nine multifamily buildings. And then I'll have another company with strip plazas. And I'll have another company with multifamily houses, three, four units, and maybe another company with two units. I tend to package it so that I can actually dispose of it. I always think of how am I going to sell it in the future? Whether I'm going to or not, I do think of the packaging and how to, let's say, sell that asset five, 10, 15 years from now. But it has to have a draw. It has to be something interesting about it that I can say, oh, by the way, I got some new news for you. Here's what I'm doing. Pretty exciting. If you want to hear about it, you want me to share it with you? I don't have to. If you don't want to hear it, don't have to hear it, but you should. They're like, okay, tell me what it is. Well, I have three <laughs> properties in Arizona, Scottsdale, off a golf course. They're packaged. Here's what's happening. You want a piece of it? If you don't, you don't. If you do, you do. Tell me no. I stop talking right now. And they always say, keep talking. Okay. Yeah. Very forward thinking. A lot of people, when they look into buying a piece of property, is like buy it and hold on to it forever, which is the intention. But you're also looking for the opportunity such that if I am to sell this, how can I dispose of multiple assets easily, minimum effort, or get the highest price, right? Um, so that, that's a very interesting way of, of, of looking at it. Um, something that I wanted to ask is, is that you have, very rarely do we have guests that have multiple um, decades of experience in real estate investing, which you do. So you've probably seen real estate at its high point, real estate at its low point. Right now, um, we're in unprecedented times, and it feels like it's just always, always changing, right? Super dynamic. There's tension, global tensions. Um, there's there's uh, division in the country. There's rising home prices, rising interest rates, unaffordability, all of this going on. So from perspective of an investor, how do you feel about the investing climate right now in residential real estate? And are there any particular strategies that you're looking at at the moment in Canadian real estate investing? Okay, well, keep this in mind. Because I invest in different provinces, I've had up and down markets simultaneously. For instance, in 2007, 8, 9, when the Alberta market was collapsing, I had properties out there. And at some point, oil was about $110 a barrel, and it shot down to about $32 a barrel. While Ontario was doing great, Alberta was dying. While Ontario was doing great, my BC stuff was dying. So I've had the, I'd say, privilege to suffer in multiple places all at one time. 
I think the most important thing is to have a really strong sense of self because when it comes to real estate, there's always going to be a tough time. Now, there's always a great time, but there's tough times too. And I think uh, the most important thing to focus on is what do people need in an area? And like, I'm not crazy about somebody's numbskull prices. I'm looking at buildings today and people are, like I was talking to somebody yesterday and they were saying, they want to sell me a six unit building in St. Catharines for $2.3 million, 290,000 per unit. I'm like, what are you nuts? Do you think you're in Guelph? But now it's like, she says to me, well, I have a house worth a million dollars. So this is a sixplex. It must be worth 2.3 million. And then realtors will sometimes say, oh yeah, okay, whatever. And we'll list it. So facing this kind of crazy pricing right now, that's what, like you, pushes me to go out a little bit further. But here's the bottom line. When I came to Canada in 1972, my parents bought a house, $36,000. And today that house is worth over 1.3 million, 1.4 million. And we've sold that house a long time ago. Markets go up and down, but they never go back to what they were. And if you're buying for a long haul, which means you should be buying for a purpose, like you have three kids, you might pick up a house for each kid and that child might hit university five years from now or 10 years from now. So you got to stay the course to the purpose of what you're doing. I have a daughter. She goes to private school. I have a property just for that. I have a property just for when she hits university. I have a property for her first car and other things. So it should be more purpose-built. And that way, if the market goes up, up or down, you have to hold course to your purpose because you're going to feel some pain. And when you feel that pain, if you don't have a purpose, I'm okay with the pain because my little girl is going to go to a great school. If you're buying it just for the money and you're not making money, then you're going to be pissed off. All right. So houses are still great. Buildings are great. There's no one type of property that I would say is great, but you must have a purpose for each property and you hold the course for that purpose. And that's going to drive you. If the purpose is having a vacation with your family one month a year, well, you might go 10 months of pain, but that one month will pay off. And so without, without getting, you know, too into breaking down your business here, I just want to understand. So you went the joint venture model uh, with multiple different investors and so on, right? Did you structure with repetitive joint venture partners, meaning, uh, you know, you tried to keep a compact list of maybe 20 to 30 partners across everything or whatever that number is. 20 or 30 doesn't sound that compact to me, but, uh, you know, if five or 10 or 15 partners do everything, like at any point, go the, the sole ownership model and kind of dig into that debate of, pros and cons of each, right? JVs versus sole ownership. And I'm just curious, you know, what your thoughts are on that stuff? Well, with most of my houses, I actually went sole, meaning I owned them myself or my, my brother and myself. And when we got to, let's say, 30-something plus properties, houses, we decided we didn't want that many. And we decided we wanted to get back down to probably 15 or 16. Because you see, some people, they want to have 500 just to say, hey, I got 500, I'm trying to compare it to the guy on the, on the internet. But if it didn't serve our purpose to have 30-something houses, I just didn't want to have to deal with all that. And we had to literally become our own managers. Being a property manager is not a great thing. Because if you're managing for somebody else, for instance, that person's, what they put into the property to fix it, increases your work level or reduces your work level. They may do cheap repairs. And as a house begins to break down, you're still getting your 6 to 10% property management fee, but you're doing more work as it begins to break down, right? So at some point we decided 
Yeah, although we're paying property managers, we didn't want to have more than 16 houses and we switched over to buildings. Now, our buildings, our JVs are most likely one-on-one and sometimes we'll do one with a person and then we'll do a second one with them. Because sometimes uh, years later, you might refinance the building, pull some money out. You may do a second one with that person. Mm-hmm. I did get into a limited partnership uh, once in the past to set one of those up. I'm not really into that anymore. I don't really care about going through all the securities things. What I simply do is we have a, a joint venture agreement, 30 something pages, where a person buys it in their name, they're on down payment, they're on title, and they agree to be the bare trustee and hold the property as a, with me as a beneficial owner. And therefore, they're able to share the cash flow, the appreciation, and the mortgage pay down. So when I say I'm a JV partner, I don't technically own all those buildings, but I own a beneficial interest in it. So it's not what you own sometimes, it's what you control, because I control more than I own. Mm. But in controlling it, I'm able to get the cash flow, the appreciation, the mortgage pay down, and maybe five or seven years later, I might come out of the building, take my piece of, of the action and walk away, or they may come out, I may take over. So it's more to do with more one-on-one. And I've done one or two deals with the same people, but I don't get groups of people to come together because I don't want to manage 10 or 20 or 30 or 40 investors. Right. That's a whole different story. And every time something goes on the news, you know, someone's going to come crying to you, right? Mm-hmm. Which, which I respect. I, I get it, but <laughs> yeah, no, for sure. You know, I'm older now, so I don't really have time for dealing with, uh, you know, the things that a younger man can do. <laughs> All about the lifestyle. Um, how do you find your investors? I mean, not at this stage, at this stage, it's a bit different. I'm sure people are reaching out to you. Well, let's say that kind of middle, st- I know we're jumping all over the place, but that middle stage where you're transitioning into some other, other uh, buildings, apartments um, outside of the doctor. So that was, I guess, jumping into a relationship with people who had doctors already. But when you blew that business up for them, how the hell did you get a bunch of partners to fund your deals? Well, in those days, I was actually speaking, I was teaching, I was doing like a, a meetup group, a, um, a two hour presentation on if you want to to be a developer, come on out, let me show you how to do that. And 98% of the people realize they can't be developers, but we created a system where they can actually learn to develop while they're investing in the actual project itself. So we give, give them a seat at the table. So it was full transparency. It felt as though they were learning something. But mostly where I get most of my investors from is I call building owners and I say, hey, I'd like to buy your building. And they'd say, it's not for sale. And I go, okay, well, is there anything else you have for sale? Nope. I might say, are you still growing? They'll say, yes, I'm still growing. And if they are, that's fantastic. I might say, okay, if I find something, can I grab on the contract? Maybe we can do something together. And they might say yes. Or sometimes they might say, I'm not selling. I'm not uh, buying. I'm happy where I am. So I'm like, well, you've been in the business for a while. Probably have 15, 20 years worth of equity. Let me ask you a question. Do you ever lose the bug of investing? They'll say, no, you never lose the bug. So then why aren't you investing? They might say, well, I'm too old. I'll go, well, I'm not that old. My arms and legs are still working. You have tons of equity as a building owner. You're not buying or selling. Let me go ahead and buy something, bring you something interesting. And if you are interested in it, you can live vicariously through me as my JV partner. And sometimes if they don't want to live vicariously through me as a JV partner, because they still have the bug, I might say to them, you can loan me money based on your heavy duty paid off assets. You're not in the game, but at least you're going to make a bit of money. 
on your equity, you can loan the money to me and help me to buy what I want to buy. And by the way, I'll still let you live vicariously through me a little bit. So most of my investors today, my last 10 years, are just building owners. And I think of the building owner because they have the money. I don't have to convince them about, does it make money? So many people go to the brand new investor and try to convince them you can make money in real estate. I just go to the building owners who have already made money in real estate and they have the money already. And I say, hey, live vicariously through me. And they say, yeah, let's do it. That's so interesting. I think there's a lot of hype around like, and nothing wrong with it. I think doctors and dentists are great and, and so on, right? Yeah. But yeah. they don't understand the investing game. Um, it also just kind of seems like smoke and, mar- smoke and mirrors as much as you try to try and explain it to them, right? Because from every angle, every bank that they try to visit is telling them to invest in the stock market and so on, right? So uh, that's a really interesting approach. Uh, the one kind of just tacking on to that question before we jump into kind of um, wrap it up and asking you two questions I'd like to ask your guests. Uh, when you transition into new markets, right? So when you're going into, like you've been to Ontario, you're going into Florida, right? You now have, I mean, you've got your real estate expertise, but you don't know anything about that local market in theory. You don't have anything to prove to them. Or when you're jumping to storage units and development and so on, uh, how do you then attract partners for that, right? Because you really don't, and I would struggle with this now, right? If I was to go out and develop a, 15 unit multifamily building, having never done a development project, um, you know, the main question I get asked is, you know, what, what's your knowledge and expertise in this area? Here's the thing that's very interesting. A lot of people think that wealthy people, they're investing in the building. They're really investing in your system. And it's very important for me to show them that I have a way of doing things. That's really critical. I have certain behaviors that I actually live. And I find that when I'm showing somebody, so if I want to, let's say, go to Pembroke and invest in Pembroke, yes, I'm going to do all the initial investigation. I'm going to go there. I'm going to talk to City Hall. I'm going to talk to the planners and builders. I'm going to do uh, a stats can research on it to see what's going on in the city. I'm going to drive there. I'm going to drive through it and spend three or four days there. I'm going to go to Tim Hortons and talk to some of the old timers. You know those old timers that to get together like six, like seven, eight a.m. in the morning. Those are the guys I always sit and talk to because, first of all, they only talk to each other and uh, they want someone to listen to them. And because those guys are probably running the city for the last 20 years, that's who I go and talk to. I'll talk to the old timers. I'll sit and hear all the gossip about the city and get an understanding of what's happening. And then I'll drive around and see what is actually physically happening to that area. So once I have that all done, then now I feel confident. I then, when I'm speaking to property owners, I show them that um, I have a way of doing things. So I say to them, whatever I bring to the table, I'm going to show you how it's going to protect you liability-wise. I mean, investors. I'm going to show you how to save your money, how not to lose, how you won't get sued. And I'll tell you how I'm going to structure it in a tax way so that you get most of your money back out of it. I'm going to show you how the systems that I put in place, even if I'm not there, will still be working. I'm going to show you some exits so that you can get out of the investment as we're moving along. And once I show them those things, because that's what somebody who has money is concerned about. I have people who come to me and say, could you invest $2 million in my project? It's got good cash flow, got good appreciation. It's, it's a great area. I don't care about that. I mean, I care about that only if you show me how I'm not going to lose my money. I'm on a 10th floor. If I fall, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to die. So show me liability protection. Show me tax protection. Show me your systems. Show me my exits. And once you've done that, now you can talk to me about cash flow and appreciation and ROI and all these little fancy numbers that mean nothing to me if the ship sinks. 
So you have to understand the mindset of the person that's actually coming to the table to bring that money to you. And I never talked to them about, I want you to invest with me. I always talk to them about little small things about me. I tell them, you know, when I was 16 years old, I used to drop off cookbooks. And those cookbooks I buy for $4, some for 14 and I get $10 and I drop them off to retail stores or, or to offices and the receptionist sells them for me and then pretty much gets the list and I pick them up. And uh, when they understand that 16 years old, I was a businessman, they find me very interesting. And then when I tell them, you know, in the military, I learned this or learned that, or when I was a certain, when I was at IBM, I learned this or I learned that. When I give them little stories, people find you interesting. And if they find you interesting, they'll want to say, hey, why are you so different? And they want a piece of that too. Because wealthy people want to be with interesting people. And I find by giving them stories of my successes in life and sometimes my failures, because by the way, I've had a lot of those too, right? And failures around the wrong partners. I've picked the wrong partners, my fault. I knew it. But either way, when somebody hears about your little stories, then they begin to want to live to spend time with you. And then they ask you, what do you do for a living? And I say, well, I do for wealthy people what I do for myself. And they say, well, what do you do for wealthy people? I show them how to convert time into money. Well, how do you do that? Well, you really can't duplicate yourself. You're a doctor. But I can make some small duplicates of you working 24 hours a day. What do you mean? Well, they look like houses. <laughs> they look like buildings. And if you can have three or four little small duplicates of you working 24 hours a day, that's going to do for you is X, Y, Z in the future. So you see how I kind of draw them into it? Yeah. I mean, I'm going, very, job of, I'm, of, I'm going very fast here, but I'm just saying, because I'm not saying to a doctor, let me show you how to be wealthy. Because when a doctor hears that or a lawyer hears that, they think, oh, what are you saying? My 10 years of education was nothing. No, no, I'm not saying that. But that's what they hear. Okay. Anybody who is high up in their education, they'll, they'll not invest with you because they think you're saying that real estate is better than them. So I said, I can make a mini you, not you, a mini you, but a you that works 24 hours a day. It's an interesting hook. And it's a good way. It's a great way to keep them engaged and kind of like looking for more. And um, you're not overselling, which I really appreciate as well. I think that, that's great. Yeah. A lot of times you see people like really pushing deals down your throat where it's like, oh, if you're not doing this with me, you must be crazy. And it's like, that's like a turnoff to a lot of people, right? So uh, I appreciate that, Matthew. So usually at this point, we like to ask our guests uh, two questions. The first question is, you know, what's your plan for your business, right? And I think we've talked a lot about the different businesses that you've jumped into. Um, but, you know, what's, I guess we could also talk about what's your primary focus right now in today's world? And where do you see it going over the next four to five years? Well, I do enjoy building three or four story, 50 unit condo buildings, but I want to build them through the modular concept. So I've spent about two years researching modular building. Now, modular is not mobile home. Modular is building things three quarters in a factory, tougher, harder, and stronger, and then shipping them to a location and assembling them all in a short period of time. And I've spent about two years just investigating it. I've gone to different modular companies. I've spent time there. I've seen houses that were built in a modular way. I've identified the problems that can exist and uh, the financing problems. And I do want to start building buildings, which have taken me two years to build. Well, guess what? Most of it's built in a factory while I'm still doing my site plan approval. And then when it's ready to drop, 
in 30 days, you can drop a 50 unit condo building in position and you would need another 60 days to just finish it off. It's a whole different way of building. And for me, I like to do new things. Now, that's just me. I'm an explorer. I'm Captain Kirk. I'm an explorer, right? Some people don't like to explore, but I love exploring. When I'm 95 years old, when I'm ready to go, I'll be ready to go. I'm like, I'm tired of being a caterpillar. I'm ready to be a butterfly. I'm not going to my death thinking, I wish I did something. Man, I've done it all. That's what I want to do. <laughs> but but that's, that's my attitude, right? So I'm interested in doing modular builds of multifamily buildings. That's my interest right now. Uh, do you find that it's more cost effective or is it more time effective? Like which parts? It, it's more time effective. So therefore it's more cost effective in two areas. Your carrying cost to carry a site for two or three years gets reduced. Right. And at the same time, your building cost to have different trades coming in and going and coming and going, coming and going, that, that's also an issue. And then quality is better in the factory because they build it within uh, a factory. And at the same time, uh, there's more quality control standards there. So I find uh, it saves time, which in a sense saves money. In the past, a modular house would be more expensive because it requires 20% more, let's say, material. Because if you have a two-story building, a two-story house, you have a floor and a ceiling, that's a module. Then you have another floor and a ceiling for the upper module. So you have two floors. So it is stronger, more material. But because things are so expensive these days, it's now affordable today. Got it. And the second question is for, for newer investors in today's market, um, where do you see the primary risk being? I think the primary risk is in biting off more than you can chew, right? So I always think if someone's going to buy a single family house, it's not really going to work. I think even a two family house today is not working as well. You should buy a property that's two family with the a potential of putting in a, uh, a house in the backyard, like a carriage house. Cause if you have the potential for the third carriage house in the backyard, if it's zoned and there's room for it, then at least you can have three units in the future. So I think if you're into houses, as long as you can renovate that basement, as long as you can put a carriage house in the back in the future, I think that's probably the safest play uh, to go with. Awesome. Really appreciate you jumping on the podcast, Matthew. It's always great interviewing experienced investors because I, I, I'm sure Mario as well, we always feel like we, we, we walk away with so much extra knowledge and, and feel much more inspired. People want to connect with you, learn more about your journey. Or if I'm not mistaken, correct me if I'm wrong, you do still have your coaching program, correct? I do still coach, not a lot. So I might pick six or seven people who I think have that desire to succeed because my coaching is one-on-one, -on -one, which means I'm talking to the owners with you. I'm walking the building with you. I'm not doing group coaching, which is good too. That's great. But for me, it's more one-on-one. -on -one. I, I might coach six or seven people a year. It's not free. I do charge more than somebody who's doing a group coaching but they get to hang out with me and, you know, they get the stories in the background. And at the same time, as I'm talking to people, they get to understand what's happening and then and we'll grab a bite to eat and talk about it. So it's more of a, a friendship, uh, an associate that I build. And um, I'm not going to give you names, but I can tell you that some of the biggest players right now in real estate, some of the biggest players 20 years ago, 15 years ago, were my students. They're not successful because of me, but I'm grateful to have been there for them in the beginning. That's an amazing feeling. So that's why I still coach. I still enjoy that. It makes me feel good to see these people 
do their great things. And I'm a little small part of that. Yeah, I appreciate the limited, uh, uh, I guess, amount of people you take. It really gives you the opportunity to develop and mold someone. Um, so I guess not open to the public formally, but if uh, people want to still follow you and connect with you, what's the best way they can do so? Yeah. So if someone wants to talk about any kind of coaching or anything or check my podcast out, they can go to my website. It's uh, six letters. So R, like in Romeo. So R-C-C-S-O-L.com. My email is Matthew with one T, M-A-T-H-E-W dot F at rccsol.com. And I have a video series, rccsol.com slash videos, about a hundred videos that I created in the last year, try to put my knowledge on video. So it's there, you know, for my daughter, but there for those who want to get things from A to Z. Uh, it's uh, it's a, a gift, but it's not free though. Mm-hmm. Appreciate all the value that you give into the community. And of course, like Maya and I say as well, like if you want value, don't expect it free because otherwise you're going to have a bunch of tire kickers taking advantage of it and not doing anything with it. Separates exactly. the serious from the non-serious. But uh, really appreciate you jumping on the podcast. If you guys enjoyed this episode, like, subscribe, do whatever you can to support this podcast. It helps bring great guests like Matthew out here. And until next time, everyone, invest smarter and live better. Take care, all.